5. We'll be looking at 16, 17, and 18. begin with prayer. Our Father God, you are to be praised. Your name is blessed above all names. Your glory endures forever, even as it's found in your word. And so, Lord, we are hoping to be astonished that we are gathered here in your name finding unity in the midst of diversity, gathered here with an open book through which you speak to us, uh, gathered here, Lord, to see you further work and move in our hearts as your children, and gathered here, Lord, as sheep who need good food and guidance and protection from the schemes of the evil one. And Lord, we also gather before you to confess our sins, both great and small, both known and seen, and even those in the secret places of the heart, Lord, there have been sins amongst us. So I pray that you cleanse us as your people, as your body, that you'd wash us with the pure water of your word, and that you'd make us clean. And desire, give us a desire for good things. So teach us this morning. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciated Brother Steve Burchett coming last week. And I've never, ever heard anybody preach the end of Romans 16. And I've never even heard them pronounce those names as well as he did. But... It was so beautiful because he highlighted that in the Word of God, you can find uh, no wasted space, no wasted sentence, no wasted word, that it, that it was an important uh, record for the church to consistently meditate on, that there was an important word there, and even how Paul closes that letter, and it reminded us, as, as, as Steve made clear, that it is most natural and should become most obvious that, that God's people orient their lives around the body of Christ. And we've lost that to some degree in our time and in our place. We've lost the fact that the most important things people places in our time here on earth have to do with the body of Christ. Everything else becomes more important. And the body of Christ and the purposes of God somehow find their way to the back or the peripherals of our life when they belong at the forefront and everything else belongs in the peripheral or the back burner of our lives. And we have in this word stated purposes of God, and we have in this letter the clarity of how Paul expresses what the will of God is in our lives. 
And the will of God, as stated in this letter, has everything to do with how you are growing in Christ, how you are worshiping the Lord, how you are living with a life that's oriented towards Him in everything that you do. One commentator says it like this, that according to Paul, the purpose of the church is that we, God's people, should grow spiritually so that we can increasingly attain to Christ-like holiness and maturity. This principle is perhaps most clearly expressed in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, a letter that is widely regarded as the most full and developed expression of Paul's pastoral philosophy. There, he writes that we are to attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This definition challenges the kind of Christianity that is common today. For many church members, Christian faith resides in the background of their lives. They think little about the Bible or God or their own spiritual condition and they draw from very little of the power for godliness that is available to them in Christ. Which is the importance of what we seem to be missing every day. That we have to go to work. We have to interact with our families. We have to eat. We have to sleep. We have to do a number of things. But do all those things require godliness if we are belonging to Christ and his body? Yes, they do. Do all those things get used by God for eternal purposes, no matter how small? As I've often said, even changing a diaper? Yes, they do. Therefore, all of our life should be oriented, directed, and focused on the fact that everything, everything we do is, is for an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose, that eternal will of God as expressed in this letter is that we would grow up into Christ likeness. And so every opportunity, everything that we encounter is to be used for that. And we are to draw on the power of God for those opportunities to produce that. And for us to excel in those everyday things so that not only is God glorified, but we are made Christ-like. All you have to do is simply meditate on the fact that Jesus lived as a man from Nazareth and at all times did what was pleasing to the Father. The confidence that he had in stating that himself meant that all of his life was oriented towards his Father. So I've entitled this Message the will of God part two, because there was part one when Andy told us what the will of God was back at the beginning of chapter four, which was our sanctification, our being made holy, our being made Christ-like. And don't you love it? Because this is one of the, the number one questions that every Christian asks at some point in their life. What is the will of God for me? And in this letter, Paul says it twice. The will of God is your Sanctification. And every circumstance that he ordains in your life, every person, every job, every whatever, is to move you to that end. 
So we have to be confident, be sure of what the will of God is. And what we're going to learn today is that there's three aspects here at the end of the letter here in Paul's benediction. That is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. These things that, that God not only desires but commands for us to do. And you'll see this qualifier in all these situations. It, it, it covers all of life. Every moment, every second, every circumstance, everything, in everything, we are to do these three things. And if the Bible ever says what the will of God is, I think I would pay extreme attention to it, which is why I could, we could expand this out for weeks and really dive into what are these three things that are the will of God for us. And I heavily debated that and then decided we would take an overview of this and we can dive in at a later time, or you can dive in any time you want. So the first thing we see here in the will of God expressed for us in verse 16 is that we rejoice always. Rejoicing is a joy. It's synonymous. It's often even the same Greek root word. It's uh, joy. It's, it could be feeling joy. It's certainly a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. But when you read through the scriptures, joy seems to be a state of being rather than emotion. Sometimes it's helpful to make the distinction between what is happy and what is joy. Happiness is more hinged on how you feel, how a circumstance, how a person has drawn you into an emotion that causes what we would call happiness. Therefore, happiness is, comes and goes. It's not a constant. You may describe people as happy people, uh, but you're simply saying that that's what they're feeling most of the time. But to describe somebody as joyful or to be joyful is, I think, something completely different. Joy is unending as we understand it to be found in Christ. And if it's a fruit of the Spirit, that means it's a, it's a characteristic of the Spirit. Therefore, it's an eternal characteristic of God's people. Joy. In the Old Testament, joy is often associated with victory over enemies. Apply that in the New Testament context that the revelation of Jesus and his defeat of sin and death as our evil masters. And then you understand joy has been seen in victory over those things. Victory that we didn't win, but victory that he won. So victory becomes, or our joy becomes in Christ as he reigns and rules in victory over our enemies. So he says rejoice always as a command, but why? Why rejoice in case we need a reminder? Well, Romans 5, verse 2 through 3, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So you stop there at verse 2, 
And you can see, we're, we're oriented into a life of joy because of the settled fact that we've obtained access to God by grace, in grace, and we're rejoicing because in that access, we have hope of the glory of God being what lights up our existence, being what surrounds us in our dwelling place. We have rejoicing now and we have rejoicing to come. So you have a constant state of joy as a Christian now and forever. This is going to be highly characteristic of what it is to be an ambassador for Christ in this world. If people recognize that you're not just a happy person, but that you have reason for constant celebration over the defeat of an enemy, then you are modeling gospel joy. Or gospel satisfaction is... John Piper would call it. And then verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and then he carries that thought on to, into what gets produced from all of that. But, do you, but do you, don't gloss over that in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Not only do we rejoice by the fact that victory's been won over sin and death, and that there's uh, a glory of God to come, which will characterize our existence forever, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And you're like, whoa, back up a minute, Paul. What does that mean? Well, we're going to carry that thought out here in just a minute, but, but think with me just for a little bit um, how he answers that. Now, I would almost characterize you as a crazy person if you're happy in your sufferings. That's like... Sadistic. That is, that is kind of weird to laugh through pain, right? I think I broke a toe a few months ago, and it just, it was unending pain, and for some reason, when that happens to me, I laugh, and I continue to laugh through it. I don't know why. It's a weird response, and, and my wife thinks I'm crazy for it, because you know, why would you laugh through that? It just doesn't make any sense. But he's talking here about joy in the midst of our suffering. Joy because of the first part of what we read in, in Romans 5.2. Joy in the midst of sufferings. God won the victory over sin and death. God's carrying us to an existence that is filled with his glory. Therefore... We can rejoice in the sufferings now because those are producing something that he's going to go on to say is an eternal weight of glory. And then you go fast forward to Romans 8, and we'll have to get into that too, that all those things are working for good. So we can have joy in the fact that not only has Christ set us free, won that victory from sin and death, but he has made us more than conquerors through all these things that we suffer. So, so we can essentially rest or find a, a, a reality in the midst of these awful trials that we have to endure, knowing the fact that God is going to have victory there as well. So I can rejoice. 
I can look at that battle that's in front of me and realize there is a victory parade coming. A conquering in Jesus that will take place. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak, this is Jesus speaking to the Father, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And in First and Second John, John understands he is writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, the word of Christ is meant to make our joy full. So to be able to rejoice always would require you to know the words of Jesus, which is a big help that the Spirit gives us because Jesus says, mixed in here through chapters 15 and 17 of, of John, that the Spirit is coming as our helper to bring to mind the things that he said. And if the Spirit's going to do that for us, do you know what the Spirit is, is, is doing for us? He is making our joy Full. He is taking the word of God, which is meant to bring us joy, and making sure that that happens. So the word of God is not an instruction manual for you on simply how to live and what not to do and what to do. The word of God is meant to bring you joy. And joy is found in the fact that he has promised, that he has spoken, and that he has declared what is to come and what is to be done with the things in this present life. And all of that will cause rejoicing. That's why when we come together, it's, it's, we're spoken of as worshiping. Worshiping. Which carries with it the attitude of rejoicing. Because we have much to rejoice over. So notice the qualifier when he says always, it's always. It doesn't end. It doesn't mean, well, we're experiencing a hard season, or well, the, 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 the budget is where, isn't where it needs to be, or well, I have cancer. He says always. 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are characterized as sorrowful, Yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The spiritual realities that we live in, hope in, make us different than the rest of the world. Even though there's sorrow, there's rejoicing because there's hope. And there's hope because Jesus said there is. Do you see how that works? So if you don't know what he said, I don't expect you to be happy. There are some denominations within the Christian faith that don't get into the word of God. Instead, they focus on these peripheral issues. Therefore, they miss out on the joy that is theirs in the word of God. That's why... We have to be so word-centered. Not just knowing it, but living 
and breathing it, by treating it as our daily bread, more important than that physical bread. Our joy depends on it. Do you want to be joyful? Second Corinthians 7, 4, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. <laughs> joy transcends the physical realities that we face. Joy transcends our emotions, and emotions are powerful. Emotions are part of what it means to be human. But emotions, as affected by sin, are misleading. And oftentimes they are manipulated by Satan and others so that we will not have joy or we'll take our mind and a heart off of what there is to be joyful over. But Paul doesn't do this. He says, even in all our affliction, persecution, intense stress, he is overflowing with joy. Because Paul understands the victory. Because Paul is living in light of of the spiritual realities as most important and most pressing despite being in chains. Do we live like that? I know, I catch myself all the time being more affected by current circumstances than by the joy that is mine in Christ. We need to tell ourselves this. This is why a lot of preachers say you need to preach the gospel to yourself so that your joy is full. If your joy is full, then you are very effective and very bright in terms of being a light for the gospel. You know, the men are starting to go through Pilgrim's Progress. And, and one thing that we're going to see through Pilgrim's Progress is the main character, Christian, uh, through, through this whole journey, um, it's not till much later that he becomes sort of a, a, a light for others on the path or the way. Because, and, and rightly so, he's struggling, and he's finding his way, and he's moving back and forth, and then he learns through all these struggles and all this to keep his eyes on the celestial city, on the reality that he has been shown the way of escape from the city of destruction, and is being preserved along the way to the celestial city. Therefore, the things he encountered are things that seek to take him off of the way, but he can't be taken off of the way. Therefore, joy. Joy. It is possible, like we read in 2 Corinthians, to feel the emotions of sorrow and distress and and, and, and sadness and all of that, while at the same time holding on to the reality that Jesus has secured victory 
and relationship with God forever in glory, which is to come. So we rejoice. And the bridge to verse 17, I believe, is the reality of Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So we move to verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Notice the qualifier there. Basically, without end. That your heart, your life, is all oriented into the fact that you have a relationship with God. Not just certain times of the day or certain times of the week, but that you live in constant contact with your Heavenly Father. Your your life is oriented in such a way that you're in constant communication with Him. And I believe we can see this played out in how Jesus gives us this parable, the persistent widow, in in Luke 18. Let me read it to you, verse 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is one time when when we have a recording of the parables where it starts out with telling us what the parable's about or what we should get out of this parable, right? Don't lose heart, always pray. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, will he find people doing this, praying, watching, expecting him, not losing heart because of a a, a minor circumstance or a temporary circumstance, but always praying, persistent upon the Lord to deliver them from despair, from sorrow, from distress, from nakedness, from persecution, from sword, from, from peril. Are we constantly dependent on God? That's what prayer orients us to do to recognize we're children and He's Father. We're in need, He provides. That's what, that's what prayer is. Also, that He's God and we're not. He's worthy, we're not. This is for His glory, not mine. Prayer does all those things. So I love this parable. You and I, our patience wears thin when our children come to us without ceasing. Right? And Jesus is telling a parable so that we always go to God without ceasing. It's amazing. So if you think God's tired of hearing from you, He has 
patience that is unknown to human beings. He is able to deal and to mold and to shape your groanings that are too deep for words by His Spirit who knows what is uh, the mind and the will of God. So the Spirit can take your groanings that you're sending up without ceasing and He can shape them and He can speak to them before the Father in accordance with the Father's will so the Father can answer those groanings for your good. So, in other words, don't stop praying. And you're like, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't pray that well. Well, just keep going. Keep speaking. He's an actual, intimate God who knows everything you're dealing with, who knows every good work he's laid out before you, who knows every problem that you're encounter that he's going to shape for your good. He knows it all. So what are you worried about? Speak to him. Live that way. He is ready to hear. He is ready to answer. And we're going to get into in a little bit why it's so important that we make these things known. There's, there's a very important reason why we have to make sure to keep praying, and especially to keep praying together. Because notice who Paul's addressing uh, in his benediction here at the end of this letter. He's addressing the brothers and the sisters together. Therefore, when he's saying rejoice always, pray without ceasing, not only is he telling you to tell yourself, but he's telling you, plural, us, plural. Therefore, praying together without ceasing matters. It leads to what's called for next in verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is a great example of why we should pray together without ceasing. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11 says this, You must also help us by prayer, Paul speaking, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see why Paul is asking for help by prayer to the Corinthians, so that many will give thanks. And they'll see, they'll be encouraged by the fact that their prayers together, the many together prayers, God has answered that, and therefore he receives thanks. We're supposed to see that together. That will bolster not only the faith of this person here and this person there who saw an individual prayer answered, an individual prayer answered, it'll bolster the faith of the whole church and the worship of the whole church because we'll be able to rejoice together at these things and give thanks rightly. So let me promote something in the life of this church that is neglected. The prayer meeting. Highly neglected here. The prayer meeting, as a medium to facilitate corporate unceasing prayer, is important because we come together to pray for needs, for help, for forgiveness, amongst a plethora of other other things. And then 
we can rejoice and give thanks together in response to the answer that comes from God. Let me give you an example. Imagine we come to a prayer meeting together at night, and we have a specific person in our church who is lost, who has gone wayward, a son or a daughter of of members of our church. And so we commit to pray together for the soul of this lost person that we love. And then God answers, and he saves that person. He brings them home like a prodigal. What happens next? We party. I like to party. We rejoice. We give thanks to God. Our worship is rightly directed, and it's driven by something that actually took place in our, uh, amongst us in our midst by prayer through the work of God and the, what's left to do but to rejoice. This is what the angels in heaven do. They see somebody come to Christ, and they rejoice. Do you understand that we can have the same joy that they do? That we can worship and will worship in the same way that they do? And maybe to a greater degree, because we've experienced the grace of God unlike any other creatures and all of creation, including the angels. So why are we missing out on this opportunity? I am convinced that the effectiveness of the gospel being made visible here at First Baptist Church of Holt will be due in large part to the fact that we rejoice in an overflowing, um, grand way because we see God together moving on behalf of our prayers together. There is nothing greater, and we have to convince ourselves that. So I'm not mad that most of you don't come to prayer meetings. I'm not upset with you. I'm sad that that we want to give up opportunities for joy, give up opportunities for worship, give up opportunities to thank God and to see his, his name and his glory grow in this place. I don't want us to miss that. Acts 12, 5. Here's an example. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by who? The church. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Wow. I don't think we have experienced joy like the early church experienced. And they were heavily persecuted. They were heavily in need. but they had joy like we have never tasted because of these things. 
They sought first the kingdom of God. They knew everything would be added to them. They knew they'd get their rest. They knew they would get their time or whatever, so to speak, but that's not what they were concerned about. They were concerned about the fame of the gospel spreading so that sinners would be saved, so that their brothers and sisters would be delivered. We have brothers and sisters that need to be delivered. I don't doubt that many of you are praying people. I know that. But I know that we're not a praying people together. And so we're missing so much goodness, so much fruit, so much joy, so much worship, so much effectiveness as a church for the gospel. You know, I've been in Judges this week, and I've just been stuck in chapter 1 because when, it, when Judges begins, Joshua has just died. The, the continuation of the conquest of Canaan is underway, and, and from the very beginning of Judges, the people are found inquiring of the Lord. They've got these conquests to carry out, to remove all the inhabitants from the land. They've been given that direction, and so they, they begin to encounter these different people groups, and they inquire of the Lord, first thing. And God goes with them, and he conquers it. And they know he's going to conquer it, that's why they inquire of him. By verse 18 in chapter 1, they encounter a challenge, and they stop inquiring of the Lord and let the inhabitants remain. Just no more mention of it. No more mention of going to the Lord. The results are devastating. Judges 3, 5 through 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. And listen to this. And they served their gods. What? Who brought them into the land? Who proved uh, to be specially working on their behalf and to display in all the world that there is but one God and his name is Yahweh? And they're doing what? And do you see the root cause? They stopped inquiring of the Lord. And if you stop communing with the Lord by prayer, by listening to Him, by inquiring of Him, danger abounds. And instead of being a conqueror, you will be conquered. Why would you give up a connection to the power of godliness? Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane, what's he... What's he tell uh, James and John and Peter when they, he draws them further into the garden as he's praying that he finds them a couple times asleep? And he says, can you not watch for one hour? He says the flesh is weak. And so it, his, his concluding thought there is pray that you would not enter into temptation. In other words, he's, he's made known to them 
that there was never a moment in which they should stop praying. And what's the result? They're scattered. Peter denies Christ. Something unspeakable to him before this. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't looking to the Lord. Took his eyes off. Begin to fall away that quick. And if it can happen that quick to him who walked, who lived, who was actually demonstrating that he was willing to die for him at a point in time, if it could happen to him that quick, what's going to happen to us? Therefore, pray without ceasing. And I think affluence or prosperity is, is one tool uh, that the evil one can use to cause us to think that everything is okay. It's not okay. It's not okay until we get to heaven. Therefore, we are required. The armor of God in Ephesians 6, after you've put everything on, after you're outfitted with all this armor of God, what's the next instruction? Pray at all times. Pray at all times. There is much to be said about prayer, and much more, Lord willing, we will say about prayer uh, as our time together goes on. But let's move on. Through prayer, as a result, we have the opportunity to give thanks. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. As a result of what we know Jesus has done and won, and as a result as our answers to prayers. God loves to be thanked. God deserves to be thanked. There is no shortage of things that you can thank God for. Therefore, give thanks in all circumstances. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Ephesians 14, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Another mention of the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, <clears throat> giving thanks always. And for everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, giving thanks in all circumstances, orients our hearts and minds to the reality that all things are for your good and directed towards that end by the sovereign God. There is not give thanks except for if you're in this type of trouble, then don't worry about it. But give thanks afterwards, no. All the time, in all things, because Romans 8.28 is true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Thank you, Lord, for this thorn in my flesh. Anxiety was not something I could conquer or use 
or understand was for my good until I began to see it as a tool in the hand of God for my good and give thanks for that. It's like preemptive thanks. It's like this awful thorn you could remove in the snap of your fingers, but you don't. Why? Because it's for my good. Therefore, thank you. You ever look at your trials like that? I know you don't want to look at them like that, because I don't, but that's what they are. And when you begin to do that, your heart and your mind are oriented to victory. John MacArthur tells a story of his wife and teenage daughter getting in a terrible wreck that was nearly fatal. In fact, up until the point uh, that his wife was in care for a couple days, they thought it would be fatal. And his kids were teenagers and kind of grown off at time, and so they all got to the hospital at different times and in different cars. And when the, all the other kids get there, they're, they're a mess and they're a wreck, and they're thinking that their mom's going to die, and the doctors don't have answers for them. And so they look to John, right? He's this great scholar. He's this great pastor. And they're just freaking out. And what, is, what does he say to them? His wife is going to die. And what does John say? He says, God is sovereign. If you believe that God is sovereign, then this is for her good and our good. How do you say that in the midst of such a trial? It's because he, he is oriented and, and directed and delighting in the fact that God works all things for good. And he's giving thanks in the midst of something that doesn't look good and is not something that the world would give thanks for, but he knows God works things like that for good. David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 9, he shows us what this heart looks like. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. There. God, first place in every aspect of your life. The Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This is Jesus actually carrying out this attitude and understanding as he faces the cross. Because Psalm 16 goes on to say that you will not give up your godly one to destruction. One commentator writes, thinking on this truth caused the Scottish preacher George, George Matheson to grow in spiritual maturity. Matheson had often trusted God to help him manage the near blindness that he had suffered since childhood, but he could not remember ever thanking God for this dreadful affliction. Then he prayed, my God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. I have thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbows. Spurgeon famously said, I've learned to kiss the waves that push me against the rock. In other words, he's exemplifying that attitude of giving thanks in all circumstances. 
a heart and mind focused on Christ and the knowledge of God is delighted, dependent, and directed towards Him who brings the fullness of all these graces into our lives. Rejoicing, praying without end, giving thanks in all circumstances, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So as you have seen and discerned that the will of God is that you do this at all times and in all circumstances without end, then how are you going to orient your life to do this? How are you going to respond to this revealed will of God? And I hope I've helped you to see some ways to do that. I hope you continue to meditate on the fact that God is calling for that in your life. And I hope that that brings you the unending joy and the ability to give thanks as you pray without end. So meditate on those things now, and then we'll stand and sing together.